What's up, podcast listeners? It's your boy, Matt Baxter, on, yes, you guessed it, another amazing episode of the Matt Baxter Show. I'm hanging out with Danny Klein. Danny Klein is the editor director at QSR and FSR magazines, and he is just like a wealth of knowledge in the franchise space. With my business wedge, we've started working the franchises, and I just love that space in general. I think it's uh, fascinating. I think there's it's ever-evolving, ever-changing, and uh, probably every single person you know has touched, eaten, consumed at a QSR, quick service restaurant. And so Danny is in the front line of uh, editing, speaking about, talking to, and writing uh, about this space. And so I really enjoyed uh, getting to know him on this podcast. I enjoy following his work on LinkedIn. Um, So if you're interested in the franchise and the restaurant world, I would highly recommend you follow along. And if you're just interested in learning more about Danny and the impact that he's having in the space and just him as a human, you're going to want to listen to this episode. So Danny, thank you for who you are. And thank you for being an amazing guest on this episode. I hope all my listeners enjoy this just as much as I did. Thanks. Danny, thank you so much for being a guest on my podcast. Yeah, glad to be here, Matt. I'm, uh, I'm excited. I've, uh, you know, truth be told, I kind of became a fan and uh, not kind of, I did become a fan. I've uh, followed you on LinkedIn, read a lot of your articles and you're doing some amazing stuff. So I just wanted to reach out and get to know you better in a podcast, a pretty cool forum to do them. So thanks for everything that you do. And I'm, I'm excited to dive in. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think normally when people say that to me, they, they like the uh, dog pictures that I post uh, <laughs> more than, more than they probably care about my work, but Either way, I'm okay with that because my dog is a superstar and I, I embrace all the love that she gets. <laughs> well, you and me both. I've got a, uh, I've got an eight-year-old golden retriever that I got when, when I was actually in college and she's starting to get a little, little white hair around her. So I, I feel, I feel the love for her too. So that's good stuff. <laughs> so, so Danny, give me, give me your background, man. Where'd you come from? Tell me more about you. I'm excited to dive in. Yeah. Um, I guess starting from the beginning, um, born and raised in New York, I was uh, there through college. So I was born in the city in Brooklyn, lived there my whole life until I decided to go to the University of Florida, which is a which is a relatively random decision at the time. Um, you know, really, I was told by my guidance counselor that it would be a good idea because of their journalism school, and also, according to her, because it was on Clearwater Beach. Um, and this was back before, you know, smartphones and even easy internet access. So most of the time, if you wanted to use the internet, you went to the library. So I actually just went ahead and believed her and, you know, got into Florida along with some schools that were in colder weather states and decided going to the beach sounded like a great idea. I did not realize that Gainesville, Florida is the complete opposite of the beach until I actually landed there a week before classes. It's essentially in the middle of the state in what looks more like Georgia than, you know, what I had in my brain, which was basically Miami. (laughs) Um, But it worked out fine. You know, obviously I I love my time there, but, you know, went to school for journalism, specifically sports journalism, which was a kind of a dream of my father's and um, ended up, you know, having a career in that for about 11 years. Um, and it, it was it was fine, you know. A lot of times it was great, you know. Covered high school sports throughout North and Central Florida until um, I got to a point where I just realized the newspaper industry was probably something I should 
started thinking about something else. You know, I was potentially in, in a wave of layoffs when a, one company bought another, you know, didn't end up happening that way. But during that period of time is really when I started to begin to look for other jobs. And my wife actually found this job at, at the time it was called Food News Media, the company, and um, really knew nothing about it, knew nothing about this type of journalism in particular, and definitely knew nothing about FSR and QSR. And so I just kind of applied on a whim for the same confusion that people often have when I tell them what I do now, which is that I'd be writing about food for a living, which is not at all true. <laughs> but but at the time, it kind of drew me into the concept. And um you know, interviewed, was lucky enough to get the job, which I was entirely surprised of at the time. I remember it took about a month for them to call me back. And um, yeah, just been here now for, you know, over eight years. I, you know, it was really a leap of faith. You know, it was at the beginning, it was, it was a really struggling concept to try to go from something that I was so familiar with, not just in, as a professional, but, you know, I watched sports my whole life. I could go cover a football game, you know, not really need to be taught what I was talking about. And then I got over here and the first person I was interviewing, you know, where I was doing this story on restaurant groups and how they scale. And he was saying all this stuff that I had no earthly clue what he was referencing you know restaurant folks have a pretty specific way of speaking <laughs> and um you know but but there was a moment in the interview where he was you know he told me he had to take a break for a second because he was in his basement and he was building tables for the restaurant um that they were trying to open and this was a multi-concept company and and just kind of as he started to talk about the things that he had to go through on a daily basis and to get this operation going. And it was just, I started to kind of understand the humanity of the industry and also how it really wasn't all that different from sports in some ways where you had, you know, I always tell people that restaurant operators have a little bit of crazy in them because, you know, there's really no other reason why you would deal with the things that you deal with, the razor, the margins, the customers and, you know, to a certain degree, it's similar in sports where it's like, you know, for you to get to where you have gotten in life, you, you know, trained and for, you know, 80 hours a week and did all this stuff that normal people would never do, but you did it because it was a passion more so than, you know, a, a career. And so there are a lot of similarities there. And then from that point on, you know, I thought, okay, well, I think I could make, make this work. And, um, yeah, and over the years, went through a couple of different roles, worked on the full-service restaurant side, got into the digital side, ended up on the QSR side, and um, whenever that was, uh, only three or three or four years ago, and then, you know, into my current role. And, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. Um, I know, it's, it, it's, been, it's been great. <laughs> yeah, I love it, man. You got you have such a cool story, and also I I uh, I, I enjoy uh, obviously the transition from you know sports. You mentioned it, you know some similarities. That's one of my first questions was like coming from the sports world and journalism versus coming from quote unquote the food world. Which after reading a bunch of your articles, I, I understand how you don't really talk about food. You're more talking about the space and different concepts and stuff like that. But you know how how maybe if you don't mind double clicking on that, how are those two things very similar and how are those two things very different? Well, for starters, you know, being a, a high school um, 
sports journalist for the most part. I mean, I did dabble in other things once in a while. Coming and talking to adults was really nice <laughs> because, you know, I was, I remember I, I was sitting in the press box of a, of a playoff high school baseball game once and, I was watching kind of this legendary Central Florida sports reporter, and he was calling kids at like you know ten nine ten o'clock at night. He was trying to chase down some scores for the next day's paper, and I remember thinking to myself, "I do not want to be that guy when I'm in my fifties." <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so, so, so I'll tell you right out of the gate, uh, you know, when I was talking to the the, the restaurant groups guy. Um, it's actually, a, interestingly enough, a company that ended up going bankrupt, but that doesn't matter, I suppose. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I was kind of happy to be talking about something that was above my, uh, what I was comfortable with, you know, because it felt like I was growing a little bit and then just getting into a world that was pretty sophisticated, you know, because I'm not saying sports isn't, I mean, it definitely is, but there's so much that happens in restaurants, you know, from the you know, from the backside to the, you know, what happens that guests actually see, you know, whether it's the technology, we're talking about the systems, the operations, there's so many layers to really kind of keep you invested in that go beyond, you know, kind of the, um, you know, what you might see in like a basketball game. Uh, for me, at least, that's what I've embraced about it. And, you know, frankly, too, you know, one of the, one of the lessons I learned as a sports writer is, you'd be sitting there a lot of times kind of hoping. I remember I was doing something on the Yankees once um, in an internship I had, and I was just hoping the game would end um, so I could get what I had to get done and then get out of there. And, you know, it's almost like I realized sometimes, you know, what you might be a fan of, you know, in your personal life, trying to connect that into work, it becomes almost, you know, you're making it work. And I've enjoyed doing this for a living, which I'm incredibly passionate about. And then just watching sports as a person. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, um, I, I get that. I get that for sure. Um, <clears throat> do you happen to know a guy named Len Shapiro? I, I don't think so. Okay. He was a famous, famous, famous uh, sports writer, covered a lot of golf, but uh, he did a lot of high school sports too. I had him as, I actually met him at a, um, thoroughbred racehorsing sale with some friends and we just got to know each other and he's a great guy so I'll, I'll not i try actually not to be a cheap plug for my podcast but if it's interesting i'll send that along because he's got some cool stories but um yeah. no i'm I, i'm sure the you know being able to disconnect like enjoying sports just for what they are versus actually having to like professionally do them i'm sure that's a pretty <laughs> pretty nice pretty nice transition so um i would love if you're right with that i'd love to kind of ask some questions related to kind of what you're doing today. So you yeah. were for a little context, I own an HR tech software company and we um, help companies hire. And we've happened to start working in uh, QSR space and restaurant space and not just that, but really anything high volume. And it's been fascinating to get to know the different franchises. So um, when you first joined, you said you've been in this space for about eight years. Is that correct? Yeah. 2000, um, 15 the summer okay. whatever, however many amount of years that is <laughs> yeah 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 R rounding or whatever it is so so how has the qsr space uh uh changed versus how has it stayed the same versus like give me a little bit of context from two thousand summer 2015 or whenever it was versus today oh man i mean it's so so much uh, uh 
You know, uh, one thing I'll say about, you know, we kind of always frame a lot of these things in the pre and post COVID windows, right? So the, you know, one thing about QSR in particular is that a lot of the stuff that happened through that stretch and then afterwards, we were talking about it before, you know, even when I got here, it's just that it wasn't happening. You know, it's like a, you know, some of these things like the double drive-throughs or the, you know, restaurants without dining rooms, you know, you would see similar kind of like there'd be a headline about something kind of dabbling in that, but it, and it was such a big deal because you'd be like, what? They're, you know, they're taking the dining room out and making it cashless. I remember Shake Shack doing a, like a cashless restaurant in New York City that they ended up, you know, pulling back on because, you know, customers didn't really like it. But that kind of innovation was, whenever it happened, was very much like siloed that you would, it would kind of be its own thing because, you know, brands were taking very deliberate approaches to a lot of what you see today. And and so what COVID really did more than invent a lot of this stuff was just kind of force that calendar to move a lot quicker. And what it's, and that's really endured too. So now a lot of times the changes that happen on the tech side or the you know, store model side or, or whatever it might be, they're happening in months instead of years. Um, so really back then, I mean, you know, I would say that the, the main topics that we were covering at the time, you know, casual dining on the full service side was really struggling. You know, we were writing a lot of stories about, you know, be like, are we witnessing the death of casual dining? You know, of course, it was a little bit overblown, but the model was really having trouble kind of figuring out who it was again. And then, you know, they were going from being these kind of all things to all people menus and reactions that they had to the quote unquote rise of millennials and then kind of coming back to who they were um, and being okay with maybe you know, being a value focused concept like Applebee's or maybe being okay that their demographic is, you know, largely baby boomers and certain other brands, not, not Applebee's specifically, but things like that. It was like, we had this rush to going back in time. And, um, and so that was a lot of what we were writing about it. And also there were, there were stories uh, kind of like in the wake of the recession you know, still talking about that. And then on the QSR specifically, what I'll say is that fast casual was really the the main topic on basically everything that you read, you know, about how fast it was growing, you know, so you would have a lot of these concepts popping up in major metros, you know, these kind of elevated fast casual. So we took the start and to call them Fast Casual 2.0, and we launched that as an initiative. I think it was uh, 2017 with this 4040 report that we still publish now. But that was really the um, story in quick service at that time. Was this rise of chef-driven counter-service brands that were really challenging casual dining because they were coming in at lower price points with higher quality products. And also doing it in, in a kind of convenience format that people hadn't seen before. And then and then we started to write about the reaction from the big QSRs. <laughs> you know, McDonald's started to serve fresh beef, and that was a big deal. And so you saw this kind of like this quality wheel begin to spin across the whole sector. And then casual dining had to get better. Chili's, you know, pulled back their menu 40% so they could focus on what they were kind of core at and do it better. And 
And so that was really the, I would say the story at the time was you had these entrepreneurial type of counter service operators rising into the fold and how that affected the entire universe of food service. Um, but interestingly enough, you know, if, if we're sort of juxtaposing it between now, I mean, that's very much a different world now, um, you know, because a lot of those concepts did not make it through the pandemic, sort of struggled to, you know, survive naturally what happened with some of the migrations and customers and things. And I think you're seeing less of it now. So now you're seeing more of like a fast casual chains who are regional and more focused and then the quality has now you know kind of moved its way up you know you don't really have a lot of brands who are offering dollar menus it's pretty much dead now so everybody is now focused more on some of those trends that were were really coming into place when i first got here so i, I say this a lot to people you know qsr in particular i think is a much much better industry today than it was when I got here and definitely before the pandemic, I think it as much of a struggle as it was and and I don't want to repeat it, I think it it did force so many brands to actually start listening to what guests were asking from them, you know, from the tech to the food to the sustainability to the overall mission to how they treat their employees and all these type of things. So the industry is in much better shape from that perspective, you know, than it was before. So it's probably a long version answer. No, no, it's a great, it's a great answer. But, but it's, it's been a long, you know, it's been a journey. Um, for sure. And, for sure. and you know, it's, it's interesting how kind of uh, uh, similar, but not the same. Um, we, so I'm, my business is specifically a video interviewing product. And so pre COVID, everybody's like, ah, oh, video is the way of the future. We don't need it now. And then COVID hits and everybody shifts to video sort of thing. Right. Or like you hear about the organizations that it was going to take them three years to roll out, roll out Microsoft teams. And then COVID hit and they did it in six weeks. And so it sort of forced the hand, at least internally for a lot of big organizations to like adopt technology. And it sounds like in the QSR space, it might've not just been like internal changes, but actually listening to customers customer needs or customer wants or feedback. So no, I, I, it's, that's fascinating. Um, who would you say predominantly drives the change in fast food? I mean, ultimately I'm sure the, the simple answer is like people do it with their wallets, which is obvious. Right. But at the same time, like you hear about new concepts coming out is a lot of that like demand driven, or would you say, predictive driven like somebody's trying to get ahead of what's coming versus like hey we finally heard it 30,000 times it's time to do something about it <laughs> well i do think there's less concepts coming out now than there were before covid i think the funding is a lot more challenged to to come and do that and uh and so <clears throat> it's kind of provided a boon to franchise growth actually I was talking to someone about that um, not too long ago in, at an Atlanta event that we threw where it was like, you know, I really wanted to start my own fast casual, but I couldn't get funding for it. So now I am a multi-unit operator of X QSR <laughs> or, or X fast casual. That's kind of what I was saying before is some of these more like mid-scale fast casuals are really starting to see opportunities for growth, you know, less so than your rash of, um, you know, new cool concepts popping up in the city. Um, Cause we saw a ton of that back in, like I said, in 2017. And I don't, 
I think now it's it's definitely a little bit more skewed toward chains with leverage, you know, and part of that being what it costs to do business now, you know, what it costs to, you know, source product, to get real estate, to compete, you know, with landlords and leases and all these type of things that are really difficult to do right now if you don't have some kind of collective scale. You know, the power of scale has become such a such a popular topic when I talk to people. You know, I was uh, I was down at Inspire Brands headquarters a few months back, and I mean, that's pretty much what their model is. You know, they were able to do it in a way that nobody else could, and didn't hurt that they had, you know, Roark Capital behind them. But the idea of just being collective scale and the benefits and how they can pull from kind of a center of excellence, and um, I think you're seeing that a lot now. Every brand's concept popping up, you know, whether or not they're starting platforms or getting acquired by each other, you know, merging, all this type of thing. I think that's going to become a very, you know, common theme moving forward. But, um, but yeah, I mean, to your kind of broader point of just, you know, how it comes to market, I, I think a lot of times it's just opportunity. You know, I think that the landscape for consumers right now is not dictating it as much as it used to. You know, because I think, I think right now, I mean, I was talking to someone and they were looking at just kind of numbers of like our QSR 50 and, you know, Starbucks was the fastest growing brand in America last year. You know, Taco Bell also was fast growing. And so someone asked me, they're like, is that what the consumer is asking for? And it's like, well, I don't think necessarily right now that's exactly how it works, (laughs) you know, because there's so many other things that play in terms of, um, again, just how complicated it is to get funding and also just the competition in the marketplace that I do think within four or five years, you know, we might start to see, because independent restaurants, that was one of the things about the pandemic is that that's what got really, you know, sliced the hardest. And, you know, that isn't because consumers didn't like going to eat at these places. I think you ask most people, they love the mom and pop, you know, down the block that they've been going to for 20 years, you know, but those people just didn't have enough cash on hand to really make it. And then, you know, to get back into it. So I do think there will be a recalibration of sorts eventually, you know, where you will start to see consumer demand, you know, influence a little bit of what you're seeing, but for the most part right now, I, I think chains are, that's the story in food service. They're the ones who have the ability right now to grow, um, you know, beyond maybe just doing it because they're seeing the, you know, consumers voting with their wallets. They're just the ones who have the ability to do so. Um, <clears throat> interesting question on um, just thinking through brands itself. Like, would you say, and this is a very, vague, very, very vague question, but would you say it's easier to start a new concept at the quick service restaurant or it is for a brand to change identities? Like you see some, you know, some of these brands that we've all known forever sort of start to revamp and try to change things entirely. Like I think Dunkin' Donuts might be a prime example um, and how much, you know, what they were 20 years ago versus what they are today. Like that change in brand is really, really hard versus somebody coming alongside and creating a new concept. Would you say that there's obviously there's challenges and there's opportunity in both, but how, what's your experience in that? So, I mean, are you referencing like if Duncan sat there and said, we're going to launch, you know, uh, you know yeah, <laughs> right. Something, so, yeah, like, something totally out of their realm. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I, 
I would have to say that if you're, I mean, it's a relative question, but like in their case specifically, yeah, their brand value was, was irreplaceable. So it made a way more sense for them to go in there and, and revamp themselves from the inside out. But, uh, you know, because I think you have seen what's what I've always found interesting, especially in full service and the casual dining side is sometimes you might see a brand launch like a offshoot, but they don't put their name in it. And I always wonder, you know, whether or not that that really makes any sense or if, or if that's just a sign that perhaps you should get into a different business, you know, but at the same time, they tend to have more luck. I feel like when they put their own branding inside, they just offer you a different experience. So, uh, I mean, I'm personally on the side of, I don't, you know, I don't know that a lot of these chains, I mean, I think what you see instead is they acquire, you know, complementary concepts like Applebee's buying fuzzy tacos, for example, you know, that makes a lot more sense to me than Applebee's trying to have launched an offshoot taco concept, you know, and then meanwhile, they could go and buy fuzzies and work on their own brand. Um, But, you know, one one of the great things about this industry is, you know, anybody that you talk to about what you do for a living or you know everybody's got some kind of feeling about you know fast food you know and and full service for that matter but they're all everyone's going to know what duncan is or they're going to have an opinion about you know the last time they went to mcdonald's or so these are real i think from a brand value standpoint i mean quick service in particular is as ingrained into this culture I mean, it's one of the most American things that we have in the whole country is fast food, you know, and that's why I think it resonates so well overseas sometimes. I mean, KFC globally is an entire different animal than it is in America. I mean, it's like it's, a... Uh, there's such irony to that too. I mean, it's literally, I know, yeah. it's literally named after an American state, right? <laughs> right. And when you go overseas and KFC is, I mean, that's like a you know, a celebratory occasion in terms of, I mean, in China, there's, I mean, I'm not sure the numbers on top of my head, but I think there's over 20,000 of them, you know, so, and, and, and they're really, they're, they're looking at it as like an American, you know, thing because fast food is, did not exist really outside of, you know, the parameters or not at like a chain level. You have like stands and things, but so yeah, point being, no, I mean, I, I don't, I think it's, I think what you're going to see nine out of 10 times is a brand dig into who it is and try to come out, you know, on the other side. I mean, you're seeing Burger King do it right now. You know, they're not, it's not like they're going to launch a chicken restaurant, right? (laughs) You know, they're they're just going to become the Burger King that, you know, they, they promised that they were right. So I, I think that that's, that's probably more so what you see. I like it. All right. So, you know, you, you've obviously stuck around this space beyond, you know, just a job, but it seems like at least from the outside perspective, you seem super passionate about what you're doing, which is super cool. You know, what's your vision for like, what, what do you hope to accomplish in this industry? Like in, in all the effort, the research, the conversations, the countless hours, like, um, you know, what would you say is like kind of your goal, uh, to say, yep, I stepped into this industry and I did blank for it. Yeah. Um, it's a good question. Uh, we, we do talk about it sometimes. Um, and for me, I've always looked at QSR and FSR for that matter as being, yeah, I kind of refer to them as like centers of gravity. Um, you know, cause I think B2B media is very different than B2C media. You know, there is an element of course of us 
try and inform you of something that's happening. That's kind of one side of the, the industry. And the other side is like, give you information that's actionable to help you run a better restaurant. But then the other part of it is to just serve as like a, almost like a hub to bring people to, you know, and then in that role as a sort of center of gravity again, so to call it, allow the industry to become a better place from the user connections that, you know, branch out of what we created. Um, and so when we, you know, when we went to do an in-person event this past September, which was the first time that we had done that in the years that I have been here, we did something many years ago called Dine America, but this was really the first branded QSR magazine event. And, um, you know, when we're sitting down, I'm like, what, what is this supposed to be? <laughs> and so, you know, we called it evolution because the idea of it was that we're going to not so much focus on the past and the anecdotes and the stories about, you know, how we got here, but let's talk about like collectively, you know, how everybody can move this thing forward and to do it, you know, sort of together. And so, you know, in, in making the programming and making the way that we kind of structured the event itself, it was really designed to give back to the operator by giving them a space to engage with one another um, more so than like us telling them what we think they should know. And I've always viewed content that way too. You know, I don't really think that I should be the one to dictate what people should read about. So I've spent a lot of time really kind of relentlessly chasing engagement metrics to see what actually is resonating with people and then just try to kind of give them, you know, more of it, but then also to really lean on them to, to give it, you know, to us too. I do a lot of, um, a lot of contributed content, you know, a lot of things that come from, you know, the outside in, you know, versus, and we're sort of serving as like conduits to get the message across so, you know, we used to call, I had to write a mission statement years ago, and the way that I had put it down on paper was that I wanted to create the restaurant magazine for the restaurant nerd. And um, so our publisher looked at that, and he's like, well, we should probably change the word nerd. <laughs> so, you know, the connotation of it is maybe not so great. And so we changed it to enthusiasts. So it was, you know, create the restaurant magazine for the restaurant enthusiast and let that guide like everything that we do. That's true journalism right there. I get that. <laughs> but, you know, what what had kind of come out of that is that I was reading this book. It was pretty uh, dense. It was called The Content Trap. It was by this guy at Harvard Business School. And, um, you know, he was citing this example of The Economist, how they got to this point where they're like, you know, all right, the media now has become such an open gate, you know, that we got to really think about how we break through the noise. And so the idea that whoever was working there at the time came up with was that they were going to do that by being very, very deliberate um, in their audience development. And so the idea was that you would pick it up and you would read The Economist because you yourself were interested in it. But more importantly, you wanted to be associated with the other person you were envisioning reading The Economist. And if that meant, you know, that someone else was going to pick it up and throw it away, then that was worth doing. So I took that that model, um, this was a while ago, and really tried to bring it into this space. So what you'll see a lot of times from what we do 
both content wise and person wise is that it's, you know, we'll take the same story that, you know, we're all writing from competitively, but our version of it is going to be one that you recognize as being from QSR <laughs> because, you know, it might be longer just, we might give you just every possible angle you could have thought about, you know, and then my brother, you know, would probably come across something I wrote on KFC and be like, what the hell was this? I don't want to read this. And then I would know that I accomplished what I, what I had set out to. <laughs> yeah. You're not an I, enthusiast, man. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, th so that was the guidepost was like, let's, let's do that. So let's create a space where the QSR operator is going to read something because it matters to them, but then also because they want to be associated with the other QSR reader. And so I think that that's really just, um, fed itself over the years. Um, and you saw it at our event because the audience was just, you know, they were among like-minded people. Um, and so that, that is again, a very, uh, winding answer to just kind of say that we wanted to be more than a content organization. The goal was really to always be the place that, you know, people who are passionate about this industry come to find other people who are also. Yeah. And, and just, so you know, like I'm probably, I'm not a necessarily a QSR enthusiast by nature, but because we're obviously like starting to work with a bunch, you're certainly somebody I go to, to help me better understand number one, like what even both, what brands are kind of leading the charge and also what brands are, um, you know, even out there that somebody wouldn't necessarily know about. So I I've, I've really enjoyed the content for sure, man. Well, I will say that, so that's been a kind of like an ancillary uh, impact too, is that you end up finding people who want to get in front of that person. <laughs> so, right, sure. so, so, you know, you might be someone in on the vendor or the supplier side is like, yeah, I really need to find like, uh, you know, someone who's, who's really embedded into this QSR world. Cause obviously we're trying to sell them X software or product or whatever. And so, so we've created also a really good place for them because you know, our audience is not segmented into, you know, it, it's very much what it is. Like we have an FSR publication and a QSR publication, which basically no one else is crazy enough to try to do that, you know, and then we, we sell or, you know, we send emails to each audience every morning, which again, no one else does that because it's a humongous pain, but, but it, but we do it for a very specific reason, which is that, we want to reach a certain type of person and we want you to understand both as an advertiser and as a reader that you're among that person. So we, we take a lot of, a lot of effort into doing something that other people just umbrella together because it's a lot easier to have one e-letter, you know, with the day's news that goes out to a hundred thousand people than it is to have a QSR operator list of 40,000 people and an FSR operator list and so on and so forth. So that you're really trying to reach exactly who you're looking for, but that, but that's what we do and that's who we are, you know, and I think that's why people, you know, have really embraced it over the years. I love it, man. That's good stuff. Um, so, uh, my, my favorite question in the, uh, on the planet is, uh, what gets people out of bed in the morning? And obviously, you know, I appreciate your, uh, sharing about kind of what you're, what you're hoping to solve in this space, but kind of broadly speaking for you, like what is it gets you out of bed in the morning? What drives you to be who you are? Uh, you know, give me a little more on that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, always an interesting question. I, uh, so I'm the type of person throughout my life, I would say, who's 
generally, um, you know, people say that I'm self-deprecating, but it really stems from the fact that I'm really motivated by, um, I'm afraid to be unsuccessful at things. <laughs> and I don't mean that just generally in life, but like very specifically with different, whatever it is that I'm doing, I'm just so afraid to let down people that think I'm going to be good at it. Um, I've just always been that way, you know, whether it was in school or, you know, whatever job I might've had that, you know, when I first started out as a sports writer and, you know, my dad was really proud of it, even though it was this mullet wrapper of a paper, but, um, you know, he, I just went there thinking like, I have to just work like crazy because I, you know, I know he thinks I'm going to succeed. And then also the guy who hired me and then, you know, I remember somebody telling me, um, the first thing I ever did was this fishing tournament. It was terrible, obviously. <laughs> but, um, you know, a guy from Brooklyn, I'm trying to interview these Kingfisher guys. But, um, but yeah, you know, I, I editor at the time, you know, he, he said to me, he was like, you know, the one thing that you have to keep in mind, you know, whenever you write any story, no matter what it is, is that the people who are in it and who read it, you know, they're going to, this matters to them. Like you're, you know, covering the world series. So if you go cover a little league baseball game, don't, don't make it obvious that this isn't important to you. And so I've just always had that kind of mindset in, in whatever it is that I do, you know, and, um, saw come and if I'm writing a story about the smallest restaurant chain versus McDonald's, I treat them the same. Um, you know, and I think that that's always served me well because I just care to a level, you know, of, of almost like fear. Um, you know, I got asked that question a lot with our event, you know, and it's like, yeah, when I was presenting this task, um, I didn't sit there and go like, yeah, man, I, this is going to be amazing. I just, I can't wait. I know this is going to be great. It was more like, I'm terrified that this is not going to work. <laughs> You know, and because of that mindset, I worked, you know, to death on it to make sure it was successful. And um, that's just kind of how I've always been. So I really, whenever I get up, I, it's almost like I'm driven by just this sense of, you know, not failing, um, you know, and then the older I get, the more people rely on me for that. You know, obviously, I've got small kids now and everything. And it's, and it's just a sense that I can never really become complacent because I just have to keep, I have to keep doing this until the day that I retire. <laughs> you know, the day that I retire, I could probably chill out a little bit, but, um, but until then, I'm never going to, I'm never going to be in a scenario that I didn't succeed because I was lazy. Um, that just is not going to happen. I may fail for a million other other reasons than I have over the years, but I'm always going to try as hard as I can, because, um, that's just the life I've always kind of led. You know, I was never the smartest guy in class. You know, I was, my brother was the first person to go to college. Um, you know, and we, we always, you know, we, we went about it different ways, but, um, but I think we both had understood that we were going to have to kind of, you know, probably outwork our peers versus, uh, just be smarter than them. And I, I think that sort of challenger, type of mindset is one that I've always held with me. Well, I think, uh, you didn't plan on this, but that's pretty good inspiration for me today. So thank you for that. That's a, that's a, uh, that's a good word, man. So, um, 
Well, for Danny, first off, thank you so much for just being a guest on this. This has been awesome. For folks that want to uh, follow more um, just uh, about what you're doing, the content you're putting out, uh, and just learn more about the QSR space, or just you, Danny, um, what's the best way for them to either get a, get a hold of you or follow along with what you're doing? Yeah, well, probably the same place you found me. Um, yeah, LinkedIn is the only social network I really keep to. I am on x or whatever you want to call it but i do not i haven't posted on there in literally years i'm just like a ghost observer at this point but you know linkedin for sure you know directly you know of course email you know which you can find on our our websites on qsrmagazine.com and fsrmagazine.com you know just in there on the contact but but yeah i, w- I would always recommend just coming to linkedin um that's you know i'm very active on there so so yeah, it's been a pleasure. I'm um, always look forward to connecting with folks in the industry like yourself and anybody who reaches out. I'm, I'm always there uh, to at least try to have an answer for you. <laughs> I love it, man. Well, Danny, seriously, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. Yeah, no problem. So it was it was fun. You just listened to an amazing episode on the Matt Baxter Show. It had nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the guests that I have and the stories that we get to tell and the smack talking we get to have. So if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes that you've listened to, feel free to subscribe on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast. Check us out at thematbaxtershow.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Matt C. Baxter, Twitter, or Facebook as well too. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, whether it's through an email on the website or whether it's through any of the social platforms. I do my best to get back to people as soon as I can. But thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoy. Feel free to send feedback in any way. And don't be afraid to share the Map Baxter Show. We're very excited to have you as a listener and hope you continue to listen as well. Thanks a ton. Bye-bye.